Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Sharp China. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, Bill Bishop. Bill, how you doing? Good. Hi, Andrew. Hi, everybody. Happy New Year. It's it's been too long. I know. Happy New Year to everyone. It's great to be back. And you know what? I'm not going to slow us down with any prelude today because we have like three to four hours worth of podcasting material after the last couple weeks away. It's been like three weeks since we last recorded. There's a lot on the agenda here. And so I just have two notes at the outset. Number one, as usual, you can email us questions at email at sharpchina.fm. And we got a few good ones over the break that I'm actually going to save for next week because, again, we just have a bunch of news to work through. So continue sending your questions and comments. We love to hear from you. And then number two, the Taiwan presidential election is going to be held Saturday, January 13th. And that has the potential to be a huge inflection point in the China-Taiwan relationship, the U.S.-China relationship. Beijing leadership has been watching this election closely, which we've discussed on this podcast. Uh, It's hotly contested, still appears to be pretty close between Lai, the DPP candidate, and then that's the candidate that the PRC despises, and then Ho, the KMT candidate, Ko, the TPP candidate. We're going to cover all of that next week. Given how close we are to the finish line, the election is Saturday. I figure we can just wait and see what happens as opposed to handicapping a bunch of different hypothetical scenarios. Uh, does that plan work for you, Bill? Uh, sure. I, and first of all, we're not going to do a three to four hour podcast. Um, <laughs> yeah, we'll keep this uh, tight today. <laughs> keep it to an hour. I, I will just say, um, you know, the, the, the poll, the Taiwan doesn't let you do polls within 10 days of the election. So the last polls eight days ago now had lie ahead. I think the odds are that lie will become president. Um, but that there may be sort of mixed results down ballot for in the legislature and the local elections. And depending on how the local legislative elections fall out, I think we'll see a different spectrum of there's a spectrum of the PRC likely responses. And I think we'll see a different set of choices by the PRC, depending on how those um, down ballot elections turn out. Interesting. I I didn't realize We'll know more next week. Yeah, you wrote eight or nine days ago, you wrote that these are the final polls before the election. And I thought that was odd at the time. Is that, So that's just a Taiwanese law that yeah. you can't poll before an election? For that's interesting. 10 days and the paper ballots, though, um, you know, there's something like 2 million overseas Taiwanese. They can't vote from overseas. You have to go back and vote. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then um, the other thing is just, I think, um, again, we don't know who's going to win. I, I, I would if I were betting, there probably is a way to bet on this. I would bet that William Lai will become the, pre- the next president. I think um, the Chinese will respond. They will be unhappy. The, the PRC side will be unhappy and will begin responses immediately. They won't wait for uh, the till May when he would be inaugurated as president to succeed mm-hmm. President Tsai, um, because effectively, I think they view him as just the third term for a Tsai one. Right. And they view the DPP as a separatist party that threatens their sovereignty claims. Well, there's just they don't see there's any there's no path to um, what the PRC side calls reunification with the DPP in power. Right. They they were and it's not clear there's a path with the KMT, but they still think that they can have better outcomes working with the KMT than with the DPP. Right. Well, we will examine it in more depth next week. Um, I will say our friend Ben Thompson got a kick out of the iPhone alert that the government sent out when the PRC <laughs> sent a satellite into Taiwan airspace. Cause I then it, it, basically for anybody who didn't follow the story, there was an iPhone notification that said, well, no, it was, no, it was just, it was just iPhone. It was just all mobile phones. Okay. So yes, it was one of those push notifications that shows yeah. up and it said in Chinese that a satellite was being flown above the Island. And then it was mistranslated in English to say that a missile was being flown through Taiwan airspace. And then that became sort of a mini story among Western media. And so I went to Ben, I was like, we need more updates on the ground. It sounds like things are getting pretty wild over there. And then he said, I just, it was a mistranslation on the push notification. Relax. Um, But the satellite itself was its, its own sort of exercise of power on the PRC side. And there've been a lot of those stories over the last three months or so, a lot of ominous signs coming from Beijing, which is part of why everyone is 
interested in this election for anybody yeah. who hasn't been following it. And this is, I think this is, you know, Taiwan's had presidential elections for a number of years, but I think this is the one that's most most covered in the foreign media, both because there's so many more foreign journalists in Taiwan who were who are not allowed or were kicked out of the mainland, but mm. also because of so the elevation of Taiwan and Taiwan democracy, the tensions with the PRC, there's just much more global, at least Western media focus on this election. Right. So all eyes will be on Taiwan this weekend. Um, and for now, uh, speaking of missiles, actually, where we're going to start is the second half of last year. You and I spent a lot of time talking through the corruption crackdown in the PLA. That effort continued over the past few weeks when we were on break, where three aerospace executives were dismissed. And then I believe there were nine senior military officers that were dismissed. They, they were removed. The, the aerospace executives were, were, were removed from their positions as delegates to the CPPCC, this p- mm-hmm. political consultative Congress. And the nine um, PLA officers were removed as delegates from the National People's Congress. Um, okay. It wasn't no, – no cases were announced around these people, but it was seen as a sign that the corruption investigation has broadened and that these people are in trouble. These people have basically gone down and they're not going to be heard from anytime soon. Right. It continues to broaden, continues to deepen. And then late last week, we also got this report from Bloomberg who writes – U.S. intelligence indicates that President Xi Jinping's sweeping military purge came after it emerged that widespread corruption undermined his efforts to modernize the armed forces and raised questions about China's ability to fight a war, according to people familiar with the assessments. The corruption inside China's rocket force and throughout the nation's defense industrial base is so extensive that U.S. officials now believe Xi is less likely to contemplate major military action in the coming years than would otherwise have been the case, according to the people who asked not to be named discussing intelligence. And then the claim that generated a lot of attention on Twitter, uh, the U.S. assessments cited several examples of the impact of graft, including missiles filled with water instead of fuel and vast fields of missile silos in western China with lids that don't function in a way that would allow the missiles to launch effectively, one of the people said. So missiles filled with water instead of fuel is a pretty evocative image. Uh, What did you make of this report and the reaction that it inspired in the days that followed? So um, I I would start out by saying that, um, you know, the article is very interesting. It landed with a big boom, so to speak. Mm -hmm. It's citing of U.S. intelligence, um, you know, sort of anonymous. It, It doesn't specify if this is coming from just one of the you know, the U.S. has a lot of intelligence agencies, one of the many intelligence agencies, or is it the consensus of several or the whole community? Um, it's also, you know, the timing is interesting, just out there the week before the election in Taiwan, although I think it's more, I think that was more of a coincidence, right. um, is more related to the fact that it was the week before where you saw these, I think it was nine PLA officers and three SOE aerospace executives um, being removed from positions. Um, uh, you know, I think, though, that, so, um, again, we, we don't know how firm this assessment is. Uh, we also, you know, the fact that sort of missiles filled with water is certainly a, a, a big, you know, a, a sort of a headline claim and a big deal. A lot of the Chinese missiles are solid fuel. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, you know, there's no reason to think that the vast majority of their missiles don't work. Um, it is, I think, you know, one of those things where we, we can't have sort of a binary view like, okay, this just shows that it's a, the mill, the PLA is a paper tiger and we don't have anything to worry about. Um, I think this, this is a, uh, and we've talked about the PLA corruption several times since last summer, you know, the PLA has been corrupt for a very long time. She had made progress. This, this whole sort of outbreak of corruption over the last nine months now or 10 months has been pretty shocking. Um, and I think it does point to uh, more rot than people may have believed still existed in the PLA. And so I think it it certainly, if you're in Xi Jinping's position, would would likely cause you to be concerned about your your military preparedness, your weapon systems. Um, we don't know any details. We we don't you know we don't know exactly you know all the different weapon systems these folks may have been involved with. Right. Um, you, you know, there's also then there's a risk of going 
there's a risk of saying no big deal, everything's fine. There's also the risk of saying this just shows they're a paper tiger. And I think that the answer will be, you know, there are certain systems that I think from the way when they conduct exercises and the way the U.S. and other militaries and intelligence services watch those exercises, I think there's a fairly high level of confidence that a fair number of these systems work really well and in some cases have um, surprised uh, the U.S. in terms of how they work. Mm -hmm. Uh, They haven't been tested like U.S. weapons, so they may not work as well in combat conditions. But, But I think it's too far to say this just shows that it's all, you know, it's a paper tiger. It's all BS. There's nothing to worry about. And in, in many ways, I think this goes back to the whole, whole big debate about, well, what's the, what's, what are she and the, the PRC? What are they learning from uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Yeah. yeah. And I think this, this is one of those things that I think ultimately will help the PLA because it probably forced addressing of more of these corruption issues and actually will probably come out stronger from this. Maybe it delays some things for some period of time, but we're not seeing, at least I don't think there's been any sign that there are um, you know, any change in intentions, mm-hmm. any change in goals uh, in terms of what she wants to do in terms of the PLA modernization um, and increasing the PRC's capabilities. Um, and so I would just be very cautious about jumping to the, okay, this means we really don't have that much to worry about from China in the next few years. Because right. I think that that is an over-reading of what's going on. Yeah, no, it reminds me a lot of the conversations we've had about the PRC economy, where there are people who go to one extreme on the spectrum and say, okay, the PRC is going to come and dominate the world for decades to come. And then when they underperform, it's like, okay, this is all hype and it's all about to collapse. The truth is generally somewhere in in the middle. And I think it's probably true here as well. John Krempaski, a military analyst on Twitter, said about that article, the Bloomberg article, because this was all anybody was talking about for about a day or so. Um, He said, one, the PRC has an unbelievable array of highly advanced missiles that are part of an absurdly frequent test program. And the vast majority appear to work really, really well. Two, the majority of their missiles use solid, not liquid fuel. Now, this speaks to my naivete in the munitions space. I didn't realize that missiles could use solid fuel, um, but there you go. The more you know, um, and you mentioned the Well, claims- now, now you're an expert, Andrew. Now you can go on Twitter and talk <laughs> about right. solid fuel missiles. You're a lot of people expert. have been jumping out there. That's a, a great point. Yes. Um, look for that on X later this week from me. So- The claims that are made there, I I was interested that the intelligence people who were talking to Bloomberg not only share their assessment of the preparedness of the PLA, but then leap and say the corruption inside the nation's defense industrial base is so extensive that U.S. officials now believe she is less likely to contemplate major military action. Um, that's its own claim, independent of what they're saying about the rocket. If that's true, that's great. If that's actually true, that's good news. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We're but all if, rooting for big, that. If, capital I, capital F. It's a pretty dramatic claim. Um, and if the U.S. has, in fact, reached these conclusions about the weapons and, and the PLA, I'm a little bit unclear on what the benefits are to releasing any of this intelligence. And so I don't know whether you've thought about it, but have you heard any theories as to why this may have surfaced now and and why this is now being consumed publicly? Uh, It's lots of guesses, lots of hypotheses, nothing solid. Again, I think, you know, there's uh, obviously it came within days of the, the latest development. We were able to get some glimpse of how many senior people in the military industrial complex are in trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that was, you know, it could, could simply just be pegged to that. Um, then of course, some people say, oh, it's because of the Taiwan election. And this is a way to make it look like uh, the PRC is a little bit less scary. I don't really believe that, but the timing is there. Um, it also fits with this idea you know, coming out of the Xi Biden meeting last November, it fits with the idea of sort of the U.S. trying to put a floor to the relationship and maybe stabilize, uh, w- walk back some of the more alarmist language or, or thinking. Um, right. I I am skeptical of all those. I think it really just has to do with um, it's a big deal that we learn more of these folks went down and that the Bloomberg reporters, you know, this is their beat. And so somebody decided to tell them what was going on. I mean, mm-hmm. I, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it, but 
ultimately, and this just goes back to the earlier question of, well, wh- which part of the U.S. intelligence community believes this? And, you know, the other risk is, is this what the intelligence analysts have said, or is this something that went to the political sort of officials who then are making their own analysis or trying to make their own conclusions, which we've seen in other cases um, uh, sort of around China stuff. And so, I, you know, I, I think it's one of the things where there's something is going on in the PLA, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, it looks like it's more about corruption that, that they, you know, there was a theory that they were all spies. There was some claim that Putin had, one of his officials had told the Chinese side that the defense minister in Qinggong and, and folks in the PLA were all giving the U.S. intelligence. Right. I think you've got a, a big enough group of people who went down. It's highly unlikely that they're all U.S. or U.K. spies. Um, it looks like it's dozens and dozens much, of spies. Yeah. I mean, it'd be great. Again, great if it's true, <laughs> but I think it's much more about corruption. Um, and so ultimately, we, we haven't seen any change in intentions or goals or, mm-hmm. you know, trying modernization around capabilities. And so unless we see shifts there, I don't think there should be any shift in the way the U.S. is looking at the development of the PLA. It may mean, again, maybe there'll be a little more restrained in terms of actions around. I think the idea is mostly like around Taiwan. Right. But we'll see, because I think a lot of the equipment, a lot of the weapons they use, especially to do sort of exercise around Taiwan and these, these sort of practicing what a blockade might look like. Uh, I don't think they rely on liquid fuel missiles that might be filled with water. No, exactly. And and that was my reaction, just in terms of shifting intentions. That is a pretty bold claim to make. And we've talked a lot about how small the circle is in terms of the people who actually know and have information related to what the PRC intentions are in basically any area. And so the idea, I, I know there was that quote from William Burns, the CIA director over the summer, talking about the progress that the U.S. has made in rebuilding its network and working with human intelligence capability. It would be great if the intelligence capabilities are so robust at this point that we have a really good idea of what the intentions are based on what some of this intelligence says. Um, But it felt like a bit of a leap in terms of what was actually being relayed there. On the corruption side, do you have any thoughts? Uh, No, I mean, the only other thing I would say is, you know, you also have to consider uh, that if you're the PRC side, uh, you would want to find a way to use this mess to your advantage. And one way might be to to put out all sorts of information in areas yep. where you think the U.S. Or, or its allies can hear to make it sound like, oh, my God, nothing works. We're screwed. <laughs> yeah, right? it's a house of cards. And you guys it's have all... been right. It is about yeah. to collapse. Right. Yeah. And and so how how that gets sifted through and, you know, how the professionals sort of weed through that and figure out what's bullshit and what's real, um, you know, I hope they can. Mm-hmm. I, I, but but it's just, it, it's it's one of those things where I think what we're seeing in the media, uh, I will, again, I will bet a fair amount of money is a tiny sliver of what's going on and probably missing a whole bunch of what's going on. Yeah. Well, and then as far as the actual corruption, at, which continues to be investigated and, and has been endemic for years, um, we had a good discussion about this over the summer, last summer. Uh, but I also read this thread from Kevin Yam, and he says, more so than other parts of the party apparatus, PLA promotions have, in the decades before she came to power, been bought from PLA senior echelons. This involves ambitious and connected soldiers spending their more junior years having to spend up big to wine, dine, and buy their way up, often relying on civilian funder patrons, expecting that if the soldiers they fund are ultimately promoted, they get a share of the loot that would come with becoming senior in the PLA. Yeah, no, it's it's absolutely, it, it was very much, is very much true, at least in the pre-she era, and it was very much an investment uh, I mean, the PLA was incredibly corrupt. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, my wife ran a very high-end cake business in Beijing. And let's just say that some of the bigger spenders were uh, connected to the PLA. And it was kind of crazy. To it's see. good news when a PLA general or general's underling uh, walks in the door no, of the cake No shop. comment. But it's kind of it's <laughs> crazy some of the stuff they, they did. And, you, I mean, you live in Beijing, you, you, you know, especially back then, you – 
you sort of could see at least on the margin some of this stuff. And it, it was totally out of control. Uh, you know, one of the questions is, and I've written about this before over the years in newsletter, when people were talking about the PLA corruption is like, yeah, what does happen to the folks who borrowed money or took money to buy their promotion and now they can't be corrupt enough to pay back their investment? Right. And, and I think that, um, you know, in some ways, you know, we're now 11 in the 12th year of Xi's reign. In some ways, he has to keep lopping off layer, layers of the PLA at the top to get to the point where you get younger officers who were promoted from an, on a more of a um, uh, uh, non-corrupt way. If Merit that's happening. And I, yeah. And I think I think the buying uh, buying officer billets isn't happening now. Um it would be shocking if it is because that was one of the one of the key things that she went after. But it does leave it does it does leave sort of all these folks hanging who had to pay a fair amount of money to get where they are. And you wonder how many are left and how they're dealing with the money that, you know, are people trying to get their money back or is it a sunk cost or it's it's a, it's a mess. And that's why, you know, this is this is, again, 11, 12th year of of, of she's reign. Um, and, you know, the, the PLA is still not nearly as clean as he wants it to be or as I think he was trying to have the world believe it was. Right, yeah. And and from afar, I think there is probably some schadenfreude when you look at what's happening and saying, oh, look how corrupt the PLA is. But also as, as she undertakes this ongoing cleanup effort, Um, It is interesting to look at the system as it once existed and say, for Westerners, that might have been safer because there was sort of like an internal logic to the way that economy worked. And everyone was sort of invested in keeping that going without too much drama. And then you sort of remove the, the people at the top and you're now installing people who are unable to pay back some of their benefactors potentially. And then also the people who are clean are so much more junior that they are going to be assuming power and who knows what they're capable of. That's a risk that we had discussed also is where you just, you end up appointing people who are less experienced and more hawkish and potentially more concerning to adversaries around the world. If you're, if you're concerned about the buildup in the PLA. No, that's right. And I, and, and, and so I think, um, but again, going back to this assessment, uh, I think it does probably mean that she believes it might be riskier to do stuff until he's got all in this the short sorted term. out yeah. in the short term. I mean, how long that is, we don't know. But it, but in general, um, it, it's, a, it's fascinating. I, you know, who, who knows how much we will really learn about what happened. They, I don't think they usually... Um, at least for some of the more junior officers, I don't think they like put out a press release. Uh, mm-hmm. and what and, and you know the other question is what is the military discipline? You know, very few uh, uh, civilian officials get executed for corruption. Uh, is that different in the military, or will a bunch of these folks be executed? Will their sort of their punishments be widely broadcast in the military system so that people get a better understanding of the costs of this kind of corruption. Right. Uh, you know, if that starts happening, we probably would hear about it. Yeah, no. And, and we'll continue to monitor all of it and who knows how much of it we'll ever actually hear about. Um, I'm always fascinated by unintended consequences and, and the idea that disrupting this little ecosystem, um, has created new problems that she didn't anticipate because, some of the people who are now appointed are unable to pay back their benefactors and more likely to steal from actual military stockpiles. Um, who knows whether that's actually what's happening, but it, it's interesting to watch from afar. Um, the one other note while we're talking PLA buildup, the New York Times, Siegfried S. Hecker, a former director of the Los Alamos Weapons Laboratory in New Mexico, described Lopnor's rebuilding as unusual. Quote, the Russians and Americans have continued activity at their test sites, but nothing like this. Analysts say the activity at Lopnor signals a wide modernization of China's nuclear establishment, warning that it could speed arms buildups and spark a new age of atomic rivalry. So this is the New York Times reporting on PLA nuclear ambitions um, and 
that was one of the worst ways to start off 2024. Uh, probably the most disappointing update that we'll hit on this show. I don't know whether you have any thoughts there, but I wanted to mention it before we shift gears. No, I mean, I think that something is going on in the strategic nuclear doctrine uh, mm-hmm. in, in uh, Beijing. It does seem to be changing. There are There's debates among scholars outside of China about what, what really has changed or not. Um, you know, I think it's one of those things where we may be in a position where some of the scholars are behind. And so they, you know, you look back at what the PRC used to do. And so you assume that's how they will continue to go uh, in terms of nuclear development and, you know, the increase in their force, the increase in the number of missiles they have, warheads they have, modernization. Whereas, I mean, I'll, I'll go back. I'm just going to read something. It was from a really good debate here in D.C., um, from uh, two experts, one who had recently come from, his, I think he's at CSIS, he'd just come from China, he'd been there for a long time, and then um, a U.S. professor, and the, the Zhao Tong, who had just come from China, we'll put a link in the show notes, he was listening to him talk, it was actually it made me kind of really nervous, because the way he was talking about Xi, and specifically how the decision making around nuclear strategy has changed as he becomes as she becomes more authoritarian mm-hmm. and as experts have been frozen out of discussions, really were quite worrisome. And he also said, I mean, one, of, one, of the, one of the arguments, and we're not going to pretend we're nuclear weapons experts or strategy experts, but one right. of the arguments of sort of why this is, some people say this isn't, hasn't been a real change, is that this buildup is really to maintain a credible second strike capability. But Zhao in this debate said, but that just cannot explain the radical scale and speed of expansion. And what worries Ugh. me is he's somebody who was in China, had access to lots of experts, left, wrote a piece in foreign affairs that basically read like he wasn't going to be able to go back to China for a while. Um, and now, you know, the way he's talking, it, it really feels like he was hearing things that should concern have, everybody. Should concern everybody. Yeah. Well, um, it's not how I wanted to start the new year here, uh, but we'll include that note in the show notes and also the New York Times article, China quietly rebuilds secretive base for nuclear tests. And um, it's just a reminder of why the U.S. intelligence community and the rest of the world is watching this situation as closely as we are right now. And she is the variable at the center of all this that, again, I'm skeptical of anybody who claims to know what that inner, inner, inner circle is actually thinking. Um, but let's hope I that agree. it's being it, rebuilt for a secondary strike. That's a that would be a better spin on it. It's getting it's getting smaller. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, one of the one of the other bits from the Bloomberg article was that, um, you know, there was I think it was a couple of years ago, a young researcher discovered this field of missile silos out in northwestern China that freaked out a lot of people. There was a there was a period where um, PRC propaganda and its uh, tools in the West were sort of trying to argue that those were windmills. Mm. I, I don't remember. I remember or, or wind farms, right? For for wind power, green energy, um, yeah, right. Um, in fact, um, <laughs> I, I prefer they, to they were that. nuclear silo missile silos. But but this Bloomberg story says that they also discovered that the lids, um, the covers, don't really work that well, so you can't quite get them open when you need them to fire the missile. Yeah, um, is what it sounds like. Let's hope so, they're right. You know, yeah, it's, yeah, chabdo, which is sort of like it's good enough. It doesn't really work for nuclear silo, missile silos, I guess. Speak for yourself, by the way. I think you said that you're we are not nuclear weapons experts. I'm a munitions expert as of this podcast, and That's right. you know what? Maybe I'll <laughs> moonlight as a nuclear expert as well. Uh, me and Siegfried Hecker there uh, of Los Alamos. All right, to keep it moving. Foreign Affairs, uh, the Foreign Affairs Work Conference was held on December 27th and 28th. You wrote on cynicism in the Xi era. These conferences have met about every five years uh, and you translated the readout on cynicism, which says in part China has gained, quote, greater moral appeal and that it is imperative that, quote, on major issues concerning the future of humanity and the direction of the world, we must take a clear and firm position, hold the international moral high ground, and unite and rally the overwhelming majority in our world. So, Bill, this was uh, an event and news story that I mostly overlooked over the holidays, but you mentioned offline you thought it was important. So 
why do you think people should be paying attention to the Foreign Affairs Work Conference and, and what was conveyed in that readout? So these meetings, they matter both for summing up the accomplishments to date of PRC foreign policy, but also and also for articulating uh, the high level assessments of the state of the world and also the opportunities and challenges and tasks ahead for PRC diplomacy. Mm -hmm. It's not quite the sort of five year plan for diplomacy that you get for um, you know you they actually still put out five year plans, but it, it's very important for trying to understand how the leadership sees the world and the PRC's role in it and what it may be doing in the next five years. And, you know, in this one, it was just interesting because to me, they sounded quite confident mm -hmm. um, in sort of where, how, what they've done over the last five years in terms of diplomacy, where they are in the world and, and, and sort of the global system and seeing lots of opportunities to reshape the global order to the PRC's benefit. Um, and a lot of that ties in with appealing to the global South and the rest of the world that is not the U.S. and, and the U.S.'s allies. Right. So it, it, one of the questions that I had late last year, it just felt like the, the term global South was one of the big winners of 2023. That was a yes. buzzword that was thrown around heavily. I am skeptical might be overstating it, but we're basically we're talking about a massive coalition around the world. And I am unclear on why people are so confident that that coalition will be united in any coherent, long lasting way, because you're talking about countries in Africa, countries in South America, countries in the Middle East. I mean, anti-American sentiment, anti-Western order may be something that all those countries can agree on. But beyond that, there's just wildly different incentives and agendas across that coalition. And so I, I read how confident the PRC is in its ability to unite the global South and kind of usher in a new global order. But I, I'm just, I feel like there are some flaws in that logic. No, I, I think I think that's, you're right to be skeptical. But I think that you look at, for example, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. You know, mm -hmm. if you sit here in D.C., you think all good people around the world are against it. But you look at the U.N. vote tallies. Not really. Yeah. Um, you look at what's going on in, in Gaza. Um, and, you know, again, the Chinese are playing their, um, you know, I think this is where they're really trying to talk about sort of using their international moral high ground or greater moral appeal, where they're very much standing on the side of the Palestinians with basically the rest of the world, except for the U S and Israel. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and then when you look at what they have, so, you know, they rolled out this, the, the global development initiative, the global security initiative, the global civilization initiative, of course, the belt and road initiative, these things are all this sort of interlocking lattice work. They all work together as part of a way, again, and I don't think it, you know, it's always risky to talk about binaries. It's not sort of a, we hate the U.S., therefore we love China, but it's more about offering um, alternatives. Alternatives. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing from this readout from the Foreign Affairs Work Conference, this language, which I think is new and interesting and was flagged by some PRC scholars as new and interesting, which is that China calls for an equal and orderly multipolar world and a universally beneficial and inclusive economic globalization. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that sounds great to a lot of countries. That, I mean, that sounds great to anybody, except for the fact that, for example, for America and its allies, that is not the world that America and its allies have a leading position in. Right. Right. Um, and so. Which, again, sounds but, great to a, a, maybe not majority of the world, but certainly a significant portion. As I wrote in my newsletter talking about this, I said, don't be surprised if the PRC makes much more progress than U.S. policymakers expect, because she and his team are, you know, basically they're offering what a lot of countries want. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no. And I think that would be the way I would frame what's happening here is that people in the West and particularly on the American side, as we record this in Washington, D.C., should be aware that these messages resonate probably more than most Americans realize and more than most Westerners realize. Um, that's definitely something that we should all just be conscious of uh, moving forward, for sure. And that's where the P PRC is. 
And I, and I think, again, it, it becomes a self-sustaining view where I think they see these things happening, this transformation, this turbulence, these changes on senior century as all reinforcing their sort of Marxist view of history and how it unfolds. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, the other thing, a couple other points from that readout, which I think are important, is that um, there was no talk of risks in this very long readout. Um, all, they just said that China faces new strategic opportunities in its development. That's a positive view. Is, is that a departure from past foreign affairs work conferences? The, in the 20-party Congress, they sort of, it, it wasn't specifically only about foreign policy, but they talked about risks and turbulence. This particular document was, um, again, more about really novel, was nothing about risk. The, the, the word for risk was not in here. Mm-hmm. They talk about there was... You know, it says the world has entered a a new period of turbulence and transformation um, and that China faces new strategic opportunities in development. Um, I I think also, though, the good news for the rest of the world is that there is a solution. And that is Xi Jinping thought on diplomacy because it, (laughs) quote, it, quote, reflects the Chinese communist worldview, perception of order and values and accords with the common aspiration of people in all countries and points the direction for the progress of world civilizations. There you go. So read up you on, your, on your Xi Jinping thought and everything Xi Jinping will be fine. <laughs> will point the way. Well, and that reminds me of where the PRC leadership, the message that's been sent in the Philippines, for instance, is if the Filipinos want peace, then they need only to obey the rules of the sea. And it's like, well, who's setting those rules? And who's who's initiating right. conflict? No, no, there, there are lots of contradictions. I mean, you know, the the, the, the sort of self-proclaimed leader of the global south bullying a global south country and trying to take its territory. There, We see that in Bhutan, where, you know, there's an article over the uh, I think last week is sort of or the debt more disputes in, with the Belt and Road Initiative. Yeah, yeah. you know the the Chinese have been salami slicing territory from Bhutan and building settlements, um, and so the the actions don't necessarily match the rhetoric. But the point is, is the rhetoric is pretty sweeping. And again, it's not an all or nothing thing, right? You can make they can make a lot of gains, and they can get, garner a lot of support mm-hmm. um, in ways that do reshape the global order. Um, that you know, in ways a lot of countries want, but that if you're sitting in the EU or the US or Japan, probably not where you want it to go necessarily, or not in the way it's happening where China is taking on a much more of a leadership role. Yep. And of course, the other aspect of that story, which we've discussed in the past, but when you look at China's messaging around the world, you've got China or You've got Russia, for instance. Those are two authoritarian governments that have become great at using social media to amplify certain messages and push their narrative in different ways. And Mm -hmm. some of that information warfare will resonate as well and continue to shape opinions moving forward. So it's all part of the same story and uh, we'll continue to track all of it. But another story as we work our way through here. Leo Jin Chao was in New York and D.C. this week. I'll read from Nikkei Asia. China is not looking to, quote, fight a cold war or a hot war with anyone, end quote, but instead hopes to see dialogue with Taiwan. Veteran diplomat Leo Jin Chao told the Council on Foreign Relations in New York on Tuesday. Seen as a strong contender to be China's next foreign minister, Leo, currently the head of the International Liaison Department of the Chinese Communist Party, try to portray a softer image of Beijing on his U.S. tour, which also includes a stop in Washington. Quote, China is the only country to incorporate its commitment of peaceful development into its constitution, Liu said. President Xi Jinping reiterated during his, re- during his recent visit to the United States that China will not fight a cold war or a hot war with anyone, he emphasized. So speaking of narratives, um, can you put that narrative in context and Leo's trip in context. I've been reading a little bit about his history, but I would love it if you could explain to people who he is and how this may fit into the PRC foreign policy plans and ambitions. So he is the, um, so it's actually, it used to be called the international liaison department. Now it's just called the international department of the party central committee. Um, So he's basically, he's the, he's the top, uh, uh, I mean, Wang Yi is still the top party diplomat, but Liu is the head of the diplomatic wing of the Communist Party. And he has a long experience in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. He's been an ambassador to, I think, 
I think Philippines and Indonesia, he's been at least two places. He was uh, one of the spokespersons. He was in the information department. He has very good English. Um, he had been, I think, an assistant foreign minister earlier in his career. He's a central committee member. He's, I think, 59 or 60. Mm-hmm. Um, when when Chingong was replaced or was removed last summer, uh, he was bandied about as a possible replacement. But of course, Wang Yi stepped in. Now, though, I think we talked about at the time, you know, once they put Wang Yi back as foreign minister, it was likely that he was, Wang Yi was going to stay through the end of the year, through the Xi Biden summit, but that eventually they would have to replace Wang Yi again because he'd already done the job for 10 years. Right. Um, the replacement, if it's going to happen this year, will likely happen in early March at the National People's Congress. And so I think that the International Department under Liu Jinchao has taken on much higher profile. It used to be quite a secret department. He's been going around the world. He's been to Europe. Now he's on a U.S. tour. It's very interesting how, and I think if you're in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, you're probably pretty unhappy because he, he it appears that this, you know, his international department and, and Liu Jinxiao himself is taking on a lot of roles that the Ministry of Foreign Affairs used to take on. So it's mm-hmm. kind of an interesting sort of what's going on in the bureaucracy. Um, but I think ultimately, you know, this U.S. trip, he's in New York, then Washington, D.C., then San Francisco. You know, he's he did a talk at the Council on Foreign Relations. He met, you know, he did a track 1.5 dialogue meeting with the Asia Society up in New York. He met with... Uh, what is track 1.5? It's like seen... retired officials. Okay. And some academics. Track 2, I think, is just all non-official, no one, you know, more just academics. Um, he is also uh, he met yesterday with the principal deputy national security advisor, John Finer. Uh, and so he just it's just interesting how he's making the rounds. He's following up from the Xi Biden meeting last November. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that ultimately, if there is going to be a new foreign minister in March, um, Leo would, I think, be at the top of the list. That doesn't mean it's going to happen. But again, if if. If I had to lay out the likely candidates at this point, I think he he checks all the boxes. Interesting. Yeah. And I, I've read people framing him as fairly hawkish. Obviously, what he's saying and the messages he's delivering in the United States this week are are pretty moderate and consistent with the efforts to stabilize the relationship. Is there anything we should know about the characterizations of Leo and, and how uh, how uh, what we might expect if he does assume the role? I just think that he's a he's a very skilled diplomat. Um, he has experience working on discipline and uh, fox hunt, which was the quest to bring back fugitives who fled overseas. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of which has been categorized by the U.S. government as transnational repression. Uh, I've seen some commentary, especially after his, you know, he did a good job at his appearance at the Council on Foreign Relations. I, you know, I didn't think there was anything particularly noteworthy in his talk, but he has a good manner, good English. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some some commentary, oh, you know, he's not a wolf warrior. I mean, I, I, we've talked about this before. I think this whole sort of like, oh, they didn't sound so mean. They're not wolf warriors, I think misses the point, which is that, you know, Xi Jinping thought on diplomacy is all about being much more assertive, much more about um, asserting China's rights, protecting China's rights, protecting China's honor. And so whether or not they change the tone I don't think there should be an expectation that substance changes. And we right. have this discussion when Qinggong became foreign minister and there was all this sort of commentary around D.C. about, you know, uh, it was a lost opportunity for the U.S. because he's not a wolf warrior, but we were mean to him. And so therefore, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I think it's just cycle, yeah. it's just a fundamental misreading of what's going on in the way the PRC is conducting diplomacy. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Leo visit is also interesting because we're seeing a flurry of U.S.-China interactions um, I think, you know, you had the Biden, she meeting at the end of November uh, or middle, the third week of November. And then, of course, it sort of gets into the U.S. holiday period, Thanksgiving and then, you know, Christmas a few weeks later. Um, you know, now, though, we've got, you know, today there was a call between the Minister of Commerce and the U.S. Secretary of Commerce. Uh, there was a call, I think, yesterday between the our video conference yesterday between the Minister of Public Security and the, the head of the uh, Homeland Security here in the U.S., um, there was a military to military meeting for two days at the Pentagon where the Chinese sent a delegation to the U.S. for the first time, I think, in four years. Mm. Um, you know, there's a, just a series of conversations going on that are all follow up follow ons from the Xi Biden meeting. And I think on the Chinese calendar, you know, they need to happen in the next couple of weeks 
because then we get into the Chinese, the Lunar New Year period where people are out for, for a while, distracted for a couple of weeks. Right. Um, and then, of course, I think they also, the, the hope is, you know, this week too is important because it's before the election in Taiwan. And, you know, I think the U.S. and China have been working, have been talking a lot and working to manage reactions to the election mm-hmm. so that they don't derail the broader near-term stabilization of U.S.-China ties. But the Taiwan election and the outcome and the PRC reaction are certainly um, one of the things that could derail this budding stabilization. Right. Well, and I would imagine on the Beijing side, they are probably aware that the window for continued engagement and stabilization and potentially any sort of concessions on the American side is the first six months of this year and not the second six months because right. we have our that, own presidential right. election coming up. Right. And so, exactly. Uh, everything is going to kind of grind to a halt, I would guess. Um, we shall see. No, you mentioned some of the stabilization, and we also got this note from Reuters. Uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping, in a recent reply to a letter from an Iowa native whom he first met nearly four decades ago, said the world's future demanded stability in Sino-U.S. ties, according to Chinese state media on Wednesday. Quote, China and the U.S., uh, China and the United States are the largest developing and developed countries in the world. And the future and destiny of this planet require Sino-U.S. relations to be more stable, to be better, she told Sarah Land, whom he met first in May 1985. The two became acquainted when she, then 31, led a delegation from China's northern Hebei province to its sister state, Iowa, to learn about U.S. food production. I have to say, I love that anytime the PRC wants to stabilize things, they rope this random Iowa family into international affairs. Um, but yes, it's consistent with the shifting tone we're seeing. They also had, are doing a ping pong exchange because it was uh, the, the great, know, the 45 January year anniversary, was the right? 45 year anniversary. Yeah. yeah. So, so they're really trying, they're pulling on all the levers or pushing on all the levers. Again, we've talked about this. This is a classic you know, you build the non, you build the desire among the populace for better relations. They then pressure businesses, pressure individuals, pressure their their elected representatives that, you know, the U.S. China, the U.S. government should be nicer to China. Right. So there's a strategy. I mean, again, there's, you know, just because there's a strategy doesn't mean it's all bad, but people should not be um, naive that this is somehow because like, this is all about like, oh, I'm, I miss you. You're my old friend from Iowa I knew for like two weeks. <laughs> I'm going to write this letter and disseminate <laughs> it across state media, then Western media. Well, and reading the the reply to his Iowa pen pal, um, it prompted me to go back and look up what he was saying about the United States last spring. And so this is she last spring. Western countries led by the U.S. have implemented comprehensive containment, encirclement and suppression against us bringing unprecedented, severe challenges to our country's development. And now you look up and he's writing to his friend in Iowa, the future and destiny of this planet require U.S.-China relations to be more stable. So um, I have a hard time believing it's shifted that much. But but he, he hasn't stopped saying that because right. because last week, you know, we talked a little bit earlier on the podcast about this, um, the Foreign Affairs Work Conference. Um the same, I think the next day, she met with all the, you know, they called back all the, the diplomatic envoys from around the world to go back for their annual meeting. She met with them. And, you know, in his speech, among the things he talked about was the escalating oppression and containment of China by external forces. Right. Um, and it, further in his speech, he also said the envoys must strengthen strategic planning and make good use of the magic weapon of the United Front. Yes which they are doing with these efforts. Right. But so this actually all fits together. On the one yeah. hand, they're being really mean to us. On the other hand, we're going to use the United Front and we're going to find ways to change, you know, shift public opinion and shift the politics in the countries that are causing us problems. Right. No, it, it, and I just think Makes it's sense. important to not lose sight of, of what the baseline is for Xi's vision of A, what's currently plaguing the PRC and be what needs to change in order for the U.S.-China relationship to be more stable. The, de- the definition of a healthy relationship, I think, is 
different on the PRC side than it has been over the last 30 or 40 years of U.S.-China relations. So um, we'll we'll see what's next. That's correct. Yeah. Um, we also had a couple other different updates on the U.S.-China front. Actually, one question before we move on. What was Operation Fox Hunt? You mentioned it with Leo there, and I saw a number of people citing Operation Fox Hunt when news hit that he was going to be in the United States. Um, what was his role in that, and why is it so controversial? Well, it, it is a um, no. It's just a program to find um, the people. What the Chinese say are. Um, Fugitives who fled overseas, you know, corrupt officials is what is what they um, and, and, in, and in many cases, they are actually corrupt officials who fled overseas. In some cases, mm-hmm. it's not so clear that they're actually guilty of anything. Um, and, you know, they work around the world. Sometimes they work with local authorities. Sometimes they just do it in the host country without um, necessarily um, getting permission from the host country. And I think in the U.S., that's what the, the FBI has, um, I think arrested a few people who were involved in at least one case where they were here, you know, the, the Chinese side was running people in the U.S. who were harassing, trying to convince one couple to go back to China. Uh, um, and, you know, Liu was, um, he was a, he was a vice minister. Um, where was he? Was he at the, um, I should know this. Sorry, I'm just going to look it up real quick. He was, because of his diplomatic background, um, he was for a period, he was very much involved in Operation Fox Hunt. Okay, because it can't just be run by the police, right? They have to have people who also understand diplomacy. Because you have to, ideally, they will work with local um, foreign uh, governments with the yeah. local governments. Yeah. Yep. Oh, so his, he became he became the the deputy head of the National Bureau of Corruption Prevention. I think in that role is where he um, had a significant oversight role in Operation Fox Hunt. Okay. Um, so just to, just to be clear, he. He had he moved from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. He moved over to the CCTI, the the Central Commission for Discipline Inspection, and he was in charge of their National Bureau of Corruption Prevention. And so he was he was basically a diplomat who was sent into this body that was coordinating Operation Fox Hunt. Okay. And you know, again, this is why this is why the idea that this is like you know he's soft, right? Because he said nice things at the Council of Foreign Relations, um, I think it's just a fundamental misunderstanding of how the party works. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you spend spend time in the CCDI, CCDI hunting down people overseas. Um, maybe you don't sound like a wolf warrior, but you're certainly acting like one in, in the sense of your, you know, you are basically saying, you know, we have to assert our interests and our rights and, you know, we have the right to go around the world hunting Into down your territory and, yeah. and great if if the local government cooperates great if not we're still going to find ways to try and get these people back yep that makes sense um and is consistent with some of what i was reading so i just wanted to make sure we we noted that aspect of the leo story um so at the end here i can't let us go without noting that there was a balloon update over the holiday break um we got nbc news writing u.s intelligence officials have determined that the chinese spy balloon that flew across the u.s this year used an american internet service provider to communicate according to two current and one former u.s officials familiar with the assessment the, bu- the balloon connected to a U.S.-based company, according to the assessment, to send and receive communications from China, primarily related to its navigation. Officials familiar with the assessment said it found that the connection allowed the balloon to send burst transmissions or high bandwidth collections of data over short periods of time. So, Bill, the balloon leaks are just going to continue in perpetuity. I don't think that we'll ever get the full report. <laughs> well- but uh, we'll get this trickle of news, you know, and it's always coming from NBC News for whatever No, it's reason. really interesting. NBC had two stories right before Christmas. I mean, it, it is interesting that people are still leaking out this stuff. They also had one story where they said that there is the FBI does have a report. Um, it's it's not been disseminated widely. I think we talked about this a year ago and I'm, we're all sick of the balloon. Um, you know, at some point, all this stuff is going to leak out. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we are coming up on the one year anniversary uh, and I think everyone wants to just forget about the balloon. Although, of course, there there have been a bunch of balloons over Taiwan recently, um, but it's not clear whether those balloons are new or just the, the Taiwan authorities decided to publicize them right before the election. Yeah. Um, 
but um, yeah, it, it, it is one of those things where there's sort of trickle, trickle. And that's why um, if, if there were things that the Biden administration was trying to quash to sort of keep it from getting into the, um, you know, sort of into the public discourse ahead of a rapprochement with Beijing, um, it's just stuff, you know, that I think there are people who have access to information who are going to probably try and keep leaking stuff out. Yeah, well, and and I am interested in the logistics here. Obviously, there was the claim last year that China was not transmitting anything when it was flying over the continental U.S. Um, this appears to undermine that. Some of the reports uh, around Christmas undermined that assertion. Um, and then the American Internet Service Provider, that's also just a, from a technical challenge is interesting to me. You're at 60,000 feet. <laughs> I, I, I mean, not to be, someone was joking. I, mean, I, I agree with it. Is It's always possible. It was like a China mobile or China Unicom SIM card that then automatically connects to like AT&T for roaming. Yeah. No, it's, it's, I mean, you, you honestly never know, seems right? likely. Like, I have no idea exactly how this happened. It could have been Starlink. There are a lot of people saying it was Starlink. Um, but it just goes to show number one, you can connect. You don't have to put your phone on airplane mode and you might be able to connect to the internet at 30,000 feet or even <laughs> 60,000 feet if you happen to be in a Chinese spy balloon. Um, and yes, I the mystery will continue. I would love to know what the internet service provider was and what was being transmitted. Um, and who knows when we'll ever find out. It, it sounded like the Biden administration, uh, it was reported that they applied for a FISA warrant to learn more about what was happening. Whether the FISA court actually granted them that warrant um, was not confirmed one way or the other. But just a reminder that we'll continue that adventure forever on Sharp China. So, um, I, I, and just to be clear to listeners, I do hope we stop talking about the balloon at some point. Um, at, at some point, it will have deflated I was ready. completely. But there's, <laughs> I was too. I was too. I was really hoping we just move on from the damn balloon. Yeah, um, it keeps it keeps popping up. Well, and I, I think I had declared a balloon-free zone like four different times, including yes. the, the last <laughs> episode we recorded before the break. Um, also on that episode, the last episode we recorded before Christmas, um, I mentioned this Fox News story. It was a Fox News headline, CCP Tide Group is quietly fueling U.S.-based climate initiatives. And I'll read from Fox News, a climate-focused nonprofit with significant operations in Beijing, has wired millions of dollars to fund climate initiatives and environmental groups in the U.S., according to tax filings first obtained by Fox News Digital. While the Energy Foundation's financial filings indicate that the group is technically headquartered in San Francisco, a Fox News Digital review determined that the majority of its operations are conducted in China, with a staff that boasts extensive ties to the Chinese Communist Party. Its recently filed tax forms show the group, which refers to itself as Energy Foundation China, contributed $3.8 million to initiatives in the U.S., like phasing out coal and electrifying the transportation sector. So I cited that story on our last episode, and then we got this thoughtful note from an emailer who followed up with more context. Um, this is a little bit longer, so get comfortable, but... Unfortunately, he writes, that Fox News report is deeply, deeply misleading. To be honest, it's on the level of what the Global Times prints about U.S., quote, foreign forces conspiring against China at every turn. The report is about the Energy Foundation, which is an American, like genuinely American, he puts in parentheses, NGO founded in 1991 to accelerate clean energy adoption in the U.S. In 1999, they founded Energy Foundation China, a branch in Beijing that is devoted to the same thing over there, accelerating the energy transition in China. If you look at the board of EF China, it's made up of mostly Americans, including several who worked in the U.S. government on climate change and some who led negotiations for the 2014 Obama-Xi climate agreement that then set the stage for Paris. The, quote, CCP ties that Fox cites are because local staff in Beijing is primarily Chinese, and the president of EF China used to work for the Climate Change Strategy Group under the NDRC, where he also worked on climate negotiations and the Paris Agreement. I don't think I need to tell you that it makes total sense that EF China would hire someone like that to lead their work trying to influence Chinese government policy on energy and climate. 
In 2019, Energy Foundation China formally split off from the U.S. Energy Foundation, I think due in part to the foreign NGO law and the pressure on any group trying to do this work in both countries. The exact relationship between EF China and EF US is a bit unclear, but the fundamental argument of the Fox piece that the Energy Foundation is a CCP front organization designed to trick the US into using renewable energy is ridiculous either way. The Energy Foundation has been doing this work in the US for over 30 years, and they were pushing China on climate change for 15 years before the CCP decided to embrace renewables. During most of that time, EF China was the kind of organization that China would accuse of being, quote, hostile foreign forces trying to push a climate change narrative on China to hold it back. In other words, exactly what Fox is now pushing in reverse. The irony would be funny if it wasn't so damn sad and damaging to people actually doing serious climate work. So, Bill, um, I regret relaying the Fox piece uncritically on the show before the break, uh, but I appreciated the follow up there. Do you have any thoughts? I accept your self-criticism. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I'm learning from no. all my Xi Jinping thoughts. Uh, Xi Jinping I'm thought I know. We, we, you should hear our self-criticism session. <laughs> Lashing myself <laughs> on the Zoom call here. Uh, well, you're supposed to get red in the face and sweat, I think, yeah. is what's supposed to happen. Uh, no, and... and um, uh, I, no, I, it's, it's an interesting uh, and I think important sort of adding more context because it helps. Um, uh, again, I just think that 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 it's 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 good to have a little bit of a. Um, I mean, I, I know who this person is. We're not going to put their name out on the podcast, and I know that they know their stuff and that their their heart is in the right place. Um, and so I think it's just an important. Um, addendum to the discussion we had last time about that um that article yeah no and i i really do appreciate it because that article had been sent to me like an hour before we came on to record and i was mainly just using it as a generic example of how the ccp can theoretically lobby for causes that are strategically beneficial and in that case we're talking about lobbying for u.s industries to become more reliant on renewable energy where China is crucial to the global supply chain. Um, but all of that, it was in the context of just talking about what to expect in 2024 and like heightened awareness in the United States. Um, and I didn't mention the Fox piece to sound the alarm about some secret campaign to push renewable energy, but it's just a great example of how there are legal ways for the CCP to exert influence in the U.S., and that's just going to be a continued theme going forward, that heightened scrutiny of investments and donations and social media activity and supply chain questions in terms of what we're importing, what's being exported. Like all of that we've talked about on this show. We live in a Western liberal democracy um, and the freedoms throughout our business environment and political environment also provide strategic opportunities for adversaries. And so we should be clear eyed about that. The other half of that conversation that I wish I had emphasized is that it's good to have those freedoms throughout our business environment and political advocacy organizations. And the core challenge for the U.S. moving forward is to avoid outright paranoia and find a way to strike a balance between heightened scrutiny and unapologetic protection of constitutional freedoms. And so I regret not emphasizing that second part more. And so my screw up now gives us a good opportunity to lay that down as a very important part of the conversation, you know? Well, and I mean, it also, I mean, heading into the election, I think um, this is going to be an interesting election and in sort of whether or not we see more, uh, see any efforts from the PRC side to exert influence on the U.S. electoral process. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I think you're going to see a lot more. Um, I think you're going to certainly see a lot of claims going forward that that's happening, uh, whether or not there's evidence or people can find the evidence. Uh, I think that has to be part of that discussion, too. Right. Yeah. No, I think like the, the specific the way I would explain it is the specific challenge is to be vigilant about policing the threats and then to be just as vigilant about not trafficking in like paranoia and xenophobia in the way you go about all of that. Um, and I think both prongs are crucial. We could also return to uh, patron saint of Sharp China, Rahm Emanuel. Don't be a schmuck is another good policy for the U.S. moving forward. So 
Um, and we'll close with this note from the Associated Press. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi said Friday that the United States and China must insist on peaceful coexistence and transcend their differences like they did when they established diplomatic relations 45 years ago this week. Wang also promised that the giant pandas would return to the U.S. and specifically California by the end of the year. There you have it, Bill. Further confirmation. Rest assured, the pandas are coming back. Good news to start the year with. And a big, a big win for Gavin Newsom. Oh, that's right. His engagement made it yes, happen. Yes, it made it happen. Honestly, I read that more than anything else because it's an excuse to mention that a highlight of the holiday break was a surprise Christmas gift from you to my son, got him a little panda costume, and it delights me to no end. Um, it's it's a onesie that's very easy to put on. That is yes, more important than anything there. if you're a parent. So I, nice and convenient. You know, I knew I'd turn you into a panda hugger. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't, did, wouldn't, didn't take long. Wore me down, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and if the zoo needs a panda stand-in, uh, I will donate my son. Not full-time, but we can work out a, a sharing arrangement. <laughs> Uh, just like the PRC in the U.S., I get to keep the DNA. Uh, for now, though, Bill, it's great to see you again. It's going to be a great year. And uh, email at sharpchina.fm is the email address. Send us your comments, your takes. But I look forward to keeping this rolling, and it's nice to be back. Yeah. Good to see everybody. Good to, good, to, good to see you, Andrew, and good to be able to talk to everybody. Happy right. New Year. Yes, sir. Happy New Year. We'll be back next week. 